Well, baptism. When you think of baptism, what do you think? Kind of a trick question, because most Christians never think about baptism. It it simply never enters their mind. Baptism has become entirely associated with, you know, that thing you do when you became a Christian. Like, the beginning of the Christian life. It's an action, something we do when we become Christians. It's, It's kind of one and done. It's not supposed to be repeated, right? So, we typically, like, never think about it again. Not not realistically. There are even some Christians who have never been baptized. I mean, to the early church, that was unheard of. But, you know, today, baptism's not, like, that big of a deal. So some don't even bother with it. I mean, after all, baptism doesn't save you, right? It doesn't contribute to your salvation. So, you know, why should we bother with it? But I want to tell you already, that baptism is more significant than you think. And the Bible has more to say about it than you think. Now, it's true, the ordinance of water baptism, that's a one-time action. It's not meant to be repeated. It marks your entrance into the body of Christ. But the Bible has more to say about baptism in ways that should come to your mind often. You should recall and remember, just as you, there's a spiritual benefit and value in recalling your conversion. And all that means and what happened at your conversion, there's a benefit in recalling your baptism. There's a practical application to baptism and the symbolism behind baptism that is meant to have value to your daily Christian life. It's something we we don't think about. We should. And for these reasons and more, we're starting a new Sunday night Bible study series on baptism. Let's say about eight weeks or so. We're going to take a deeper look at what the Bible says about baptism. And before we get into tonight's actual study, I want to spend a little more time to frame the discussion a bit further. Baptism, it's something everyone's heard of. Even like any other religion, any country, everyone essentially has heard of what baptism is, this this typically Christian rite of dunking people underwater. That's how they become a Christian, at least in the eyes of the world. Baptism is not practiced by all, but it's known to all. The Christian church, of course, Christians have been practicing baptism for, well, a couple thousand years now. The act of water baptism is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's one of the first things you see when you open, you turn that page from Malachi to Matthew. Like, it's, it's there. It's known. It's, it's expected. Baptism, it, it exists. It's a big deal. Right away in the Gospels, one of the first characters we meet after the birth account of Jesus is a guy named John. And he's, he's so associated with this practice of dunking people underwater that his surname is John the... Baptist. I mean, you all know. We're told that John administered a baptism of repentance for Israel in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And as you turn the page to the New Testament, you wouldn't be wrong to have some questions like, what is this? Where did this come from? What is he doing? Why is he doing this? What does this mean? What did John's baptism really accomplish? And since it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, was it sanctioned by God? Where did it come from? How did he baptize people? And then, like, why did he baptize Jesus? Is that really necessary? You recall, Jesus submitted himself to John's baptism. Why? What are the implications of that? A lot of questions. After that, pretty soon, Jesus himself starts making disciples. And accordingly, baptizing people, although Christ himself did not baptize, his disciples did the actual dunking. But it brings up more questions. Was that the same baptism as, as that of John? Or was it different? And later after his death and resurrection, before Christ ascends, 
he passes on to his disciples this commission to, to keep at it, keep making more disciples. And when someone becomes a disciple, well, what are you supposed to do? Baptize them. It's a difference though. This now, unlike John's baptism, it seems to be specifically and exclusively in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So is this a new type of baptism? Is this baptism for the church different than John's baptism? And like, what's the point of this? What does this accomplish? Why did Jesus command new disciples to be baptized? How does baptism relate to salvation? Does it save? And if it doesn't save, like any actual value or just purely a symbol or what, what's the deal? Questions continue to abound. And then as you leave the gospels, you get into Acts and the epistles, questions just multiply. Because you quickly learn there are other types of baptism mentioned. You get into the book of Acts, and you see baptism of what? The Holy Spirit. Right away, you get baptism of the Holy Spirit. This spirit baptism is not a literal dunking under water, but it's an immersion in the Spirit. What does that mean? What's that for? Why is this happening? What does that signify? Does that relate to water baptism or just totally different? Then you get to the epistles. You find there's also something called baptism in Christ. Is that like something new now? Is that the same as spirit baptism? Is that different? What does that signify? What does it mean to be baptized in Christ? Maybe just add a little more confusion. Scripture also speaks of a baptism of fire, a baptism of suffering, and a baptism for the dead. What are these about? So if you thought baptism in Scripture was just simply the practice of being dunked underwater and that's it, there's nothing more to it, you're mistaken. There's a lot in there and a lot of questions worth answering. Now, that being said, speaking of water baptism, that is mostly what we think of when we think of baptism. And rightly so, that's an important ordinance for the church along with the Lord's Supper. It, It matters. But over the centuries, Christians have come to some differences on what even water baptism is all about, what it signifies, what, what's the point. Questions on its, its meaning, its mode, its purpose, its importance. For example, should water baptism be done by immersion or by sprinkling? And should it be administered to believers only or to the, the children of believers like infants? I could go on. I don't think I need to. I trust you already, you're convinced at least, okay, we get it, baptism is bigger than I thought. There's more to it than I thought. It's a bigger deal in in Scripture. And so accordingly, the purpose of this study is going to be to clear up confusion, answer questions, learn what the Bible says about baptism in all its forms, and then rightly apply these truths to our life, our individual lives, and even our church life, our church practice, just so we have a right understanding of baptism. Regarding water baptism, it's one of the two ordinances that Christ left for the church. You should probably get that figured out. You're like, what's that about? We want to do that for the right reasons in the right way. And we're going to start today by studying the most significant form of baptism in the New Testament. Like I teased this morning, it's not water baptism. It is baptism in Christ. So this is lesson one, baptism in Christ. You might wonder why would we not begin by talking about water baptism. That's what everyone thinks of. And the ordinance of water baptism is very important. We're going to spend several lessons on it. But I'm, going to, I'm just going to start off with a few assumptions. I'm going to assume that you already believe that baptism does not save you. 
Baptism does not regenerate you. And we rightly reject any sacramental view of baptism, which confers that the saving or the transforming grace of God on a person through the actual act of baptism. That, for example, is what the Catholic Church teaches. We will talk about that later. I'm just going to hope I'm safe in assuming that for now you, you know that's not true. Baptism itself doesn't save you or contribute to the, the salvation act of God. That it's symbolic in its purpose, not saving in its purpose. So if that's the case, what does water baptism symbolize? What's behind this practice of water baptism? That's what I wanted to start with. Is kind of lay a foundational understanding of baptism in scripture. What's the, what's the spiritual reality behind this practice? I just wanted to start there. And that's going to be baptism in Christ for one. And there's actually a second half of that we'll see next week. But we're going to start with baptism in Christ. If you don't understand what it means to be baptized in Christ or into Christ, you're going to miss a lot of what's behind uh, the significance of water baptism. So let's, let's start this uh, study in baptism in Christ. That being said, I should also say, since this is the first lesson, let me just quickly give you a few baptism basics. The main word for baptize in scripture is baptizo, which means to plunge, to dip, to immerse something in water. If you're washing your clothes down by the river and you immerse them into the water, you could say you baptized your clothes. It's a common word just to immerse something in water. But of course, this common word came to take on a sacred significance over time. The Christians kind of stole it and it became a Christian technical term for immersing a disciple of Jesus in water to communicate identification. And I don't want to oversimplify, but that's a good word just to start, already start thinking about what baptism means. The word of identification. Identification. That's usually what's meant when the word baptizo is used with preposition ice, which means into or unto, and something called an accusative. It means you're being baptized into something. It's communicating identification. So when it says you're baptized into Christ, it's teaching, in essence, identification with Christ. When you're baptized into the Holy Spirit, it means you're identifying with the Holy Spirit. What that all means, we'll get to. But just, you know, already see a basic understanding of identification or another word, uh, solidarity is used. What we're talking about with baptism, in, in essence, identification with the person and then all that goes with it. This explains a very quick passing reference to baptism in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2. I'll read it really quick. And Paul says to them, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's all he says. He just moves on. But during the Exodus, as Israel followed Moses through the parted Red Sea, they're pictured as having undergone a baptism, but not of literal water. He says they were baptized into Moses. It simply means that they, at that point, the, the climax of the Exodus and their deliverance, at that point, they became identified with Moses, who was their mediator. Now, of course, Moses is no longer our mediator. We don't identify with Moses. In the New Covenant, we identify with Christ. And really, the whole triune God, we identify with, with God. 
This in part explains Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, and then baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We'll obviously come back to that verse uh, in the future, but in a simple, general sense, this baptism, you are identifying now with the triune God. This, this basic idea of identification is also behind 1 Corinthians 1, verse 13, where Paul says to them, they remember they were being divisive, and he says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The Corinthian believers, they were making the wrong identification. They were losing sight. Like, no, you identify with, with Christ alone. But they were identifying like, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. But he makes a point like, yeah, not so fast. You're, you're, not, you're not of me. You weren't baptized in Paul's name, were you? They're not identified or united to Paul, are they? No, only to Christ. They were only baptized in Christ's name. And so the simple point he's making there is that you all should be united to Christ and therefore not divided with one another on these party lines. You're all baptized into Christ, right? You're all united to Christ, identified with Christ. Again, this is, we're starting off basic. There's more to say. But in a general sense, you can think of baptism as a means of identification. And when speaking of baptism in Christ, it means we've identified with Christ. And we need to take this further, though, because, well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to say we're identifying with Christ? In what ways do we identify with him? And, and what does that really mean? Well, let's, let's turn to a key passage that links this idea of baptism in Christ with the key concept of union with Christ. A passage that links baptism in Christ with union with Christ you turn to Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29. We'll talk a little bit about union with Christ. It's Galatians 3, 26 through 29. I'll read it as you're, as you're getting there. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says to them, For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Who are the true sons of Abraham? The answer, those who believe, those of faith. The law doesn't justify you, make you a, a son of God. The law, it just brings the curse of death. It was always God's intention, though, to bring the, the, pl- the promise of blessing to fulfillment through Christ, who is the ultimate seed of Abraham. In Christ, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the promise comes to those who believe. We become Abraham's spiritual descendants according to the promise by faith. So Paul is here just continuing to teach on justification by faith. He says, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Christ is our mediator now, not Moses. We're, we come to salvation, faith, in Christ Jesus. We might say, like, wait a second, but we're sinners, right? We have transgressed. You talked earlier about the curse of the law. We've all violated God's law. We've all transgressed. We all are under that curse. We should bear the curse, which is death. But he goes on to say that Jesus died for us. And he bore that curse for us as well. And in Christ, we can be forgiven and freed from the curse of sin and death and all their effects. How? Well, by identification with Christ, which is to say by union with Christ. That's how this applies to us. That's what verse 27 means. He says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. It's kind of a common image, but you picture a guy who's just in filthy rags, dirty, tattered, torn, smelly. And this person can't enter, enter the, the kingdom of God dressed like that. God is holy. You've got to be looking perfect to enter the kingdom. But what Christ does, he comes to this person and he removes his filthy rags, takes them away, throws them away, burns them, and, and gives him instead his own royal robe of perfect righteousness. That's exactly what you need to wear to enter the kingdom. We need to be clothed with Christ and his righteousness, his work, his death, his resurrection on our behalf. That, that's what we need. And all that comes with that, that's what we need to enter. We're not getting in with our own efforts, our own righteousness. We need to be clothed with Christ, so to speak, and all that comes with it. That happens by faith. And this is what it means to be baptized into Christ. You're putting on Christ. You're putting on all of his saving work and benefits. It's now applying to you. Now, Paul's main point here is really not baptism. This is his only mention of baptism in Galatians. He very quickly references it here without much explanation. But there are two other key passages where he goes on in greater detail. This concept of baptism in Christ. This is where we need to spend really most of our time. To further explore what baptism in Christ means. Means for us. Already we get a glimpse. It has to do with union with Christ. Just being clothed with Christ. And, and he, what he did for us. We've got to keep going. So let's go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And we'll look at verses 1 through 7. Now again, as you're turning, some would ask, in these passages like Galatians 3, Romans 6, when he says baptism, does he mean water baptism or is he talking about baptism in Christ? And to this, I would agree with uh, the well-known scholar Thomas Schreiner, who suggests Paul would have been puzzled by that question and would simply answer both. And let me clarify in case you don't even know what I'm talking about. It's important that you understand that in the early church, essentially every believer was baptized immediately after their conversion. Profession of faith, conversion, they're baptized right then and there. We don't have any examples of long waiting periods. The person made a profession of faith and essentially as soon as they got to water, he or she was baptized. In addition, this was universal. Meaning, the early church had no concept of an unbaptized Christian. If you're a Christian, you were baptized. Plain and simple. I mean, that, that's just how it was. 
And so the point is, when an early Christian or the Apostle Paul, when they speak of baptism or think of the word baptism, of course the the image of water baptism is going to be in their mind. But to them, baptism really communicates conversion. It just, water baptism became so associated with their conversion. It happened at the time of conversion. It became that symbol of conversion. Water baptism was the milepost, the mile marker of their conversion. And such that when they wanted to speak of conversion, they could just speak of baptism. This understanding can challenge, though, modern Christians because today, fewer people associate baptism with conversion. Most people make a profession of faith, it seems, and then like maybe a month later, maybe like six months later after a baptism class or a year later or 10 years later, they finally get around to getting baptized long after their conversion. And so when they think of their conversion, like baptism doesn't even come to mind. Instead, they think of, you know, signing a card or praying a prayer or accepting an altar call. This is a problem, I think. I think, I think the church is, is losing something by allowing such a large time to elapse between conversion and baptism. Something that we'll explore in a future lesson. But for now, though, I just want you to understand that whenever Paul speaks of baptism, he's speaking of conversion. He's thinking of conversion and conversion realities. And does he have water baptism in mind or baptism in Christ in mind, the, the spiritual truth? Well, both in the sense that they weren't really separated in time in the early church. You were converted, a.k.a. baptized in Christ. And then, you know, essentially, immediately thereafter, you were baptized in water. Now, that being said, hopefully that just gives you some understanding, a little framework, a little background to the New Testament. If you're getting very technical, though, here in Romans 6, and Paul is most directly talking about conversion, and so that's not water baptism, it's what's behind water baptism, the spiritual reality we call baptism in Christ. That takes place at conversion. It may or may not follow, be followed by water baptism, and the early church usually was. But it, at its core, yes, what we're going to learn here in Romans 6, he's talking about what took place at the time of our baptism into Christ. That is our conversion, which is symbolized by water baptism. So let's read now Romans 6, 1 through 7. See, we'll see what he says. Romans 6, 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Let's go back and kind of think through this a little bit. You see, he begins verse 1 with a rhetorical question. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Now you realize in chapters 3 through 5, Paul has argued that salvation, 
or justification. It's by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. That God declares a sinner just or righteous is by faith in Christ alone, not on the basis of their keeping the law or doing good works. It's faith alone. If this doctrine is true, though, you know, what does that mean for personal holiness? Does that mean like a believer can sin with impunity? I'm, I'm saved by grace through faith. So I guess it doesn't matter what I do as long as I believe. I'm good to go, right? No, rather those who are justified will be sanctified and practical holiness will result from justification. Righteous living will flow from justification. That's Paul's, you know, grand point in Romans 6 through 8. So he asks this rhetorical question because he's anticipating an objection to justification by faith. So we're really saved just by grace through faith in Christ apart from works. Does that mean we can just go on sinning? Because, you know, grace covers it all, right? And he says in chapter 6, no, not even close. You're, you're, you're not getting the, f- the full picture here. Let me fill you in. And so he's going to fill us in. The answer, the answer, no, you should not continue in sin. And he says in verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And what does that mean? He says we have died to sin. In what ways have we died to sin? We didn't actually die. We still have a pulse. I'm, I'm, I'm breathing. You're breathing. We're still here. But in some sense, it can be said we have died to sin. How so? Well, the answer, in Christ. In Christ, by virtue of our union with Christ. Jesus died to sin on the cross, and he victoriously conquered sin. We are counted dead to sin in him. This reintroduces that concept of union to Christ. Last time I checked, you know, you and I weren't actually crucified. Christ was, but as he says in verse 5 and there it is, verse 6, we were crucified with him, our old self was. What Christ did for us, all the saving benefits of his work are ours by this identification, by union with Christ. He says in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Don't you know that? You know that, right? We as Christians, we've been baptized in Christ. That means we've been baptized into his death. And he asked him like, hey, you guys know that, right? Didn't you know that? Did you know that? He's assuming you should know that. Let's keep talking about that. Remember, this word baptizo means to immerse. So at conversion, believers are spiritually baptized or immersed into Christ. At Galatians, we're clothed with Christ. And this brings us into a spiritual union with him. And through that union, we fully identify with Christ as, as our head, our savior. This means we identify with his death. His death, that's our death now. His victory over sin, that's our victory over sin now. His rise to new life, that's my rise to new life. Not because I did anything, that's the whole point, it's of grace, but it, it comes to me by union with Christ. And this again, this is what water baptism actually symbolizes. As a person confesses Christ, 
and their union with him. They're immersed in water. And as they go under the water, it, it pictures their death. They've died to old self. They've died with Christ. But they don't stay dead. They emerge, they come up, and as they do so, they're pictured as rising to new life, likewise in Christ. And what makes these realities effective is not the water. It's what Jesus did. He's, he's what's behind baptism. It says verse 4, therefore. It's a big therefore. Therefore, we have been buried with him. So now we're buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It's a big therefore. Because of this vital union with Christ via spiritual baptism, he draws some important connections. Now think back to chapter 5. I'll just summarize with Romans 5, 12 through 19. He, he speaks of our two great problems that keep us from God. Sin and death. Our two enemies, sin and death. Sin which leads to death. And by virtue of our union to the first Adam, we're all sinners by nature. We all have sinned. And so we're all going to die eternally. Sin is effectively our master. We're enslaved. We're hopeless. But Jesus came and in, in his death and resurrection, he conquered both sin and death. So both those enemies, he conquered. He took care of sin and death. He triumphed over sin and death. That's, that's good news. And the point he's making in chapter 6 is that Christ's triumph is our triumph now. His victory over sin and death, that's now our victory over sin and death. He has broken the power and authority of sin and death in our lives. We're still sinners right now before glorification because we still have the flesh. That's chapter 7. But the flesh shall not master us any longer. We're no longer enslaved to sin. And by virtue of our vital union to the second Adam, we've been freed from sin as our master and death as our future. We've died to sin, meaning we've died to its power over us. We've died to the penalty of sin as well, which is death. And furthermore, uh, we have risen to new life, to eternal life. You know, we, we didn't do anything here, but Christ did. He died. He was buried. He rose. And as we are united to him by faith, we're baptized into him. That's all now. That, that becomes yours. You now have died that death. You were buried and you rose. And because these things are true, he's teaching obviously spiritual realities at conversion, right? These are conversion realities because they're true. You know this, right? Verse three, you know this. You should. If you don't, well, now you know. He says in verse four, verse four, because these are true, we should what? What should we do? Walk in newness of life. You're not dead anymore. You're not enslaved to sin anymore. You're not in the grave anymore. You're not under death. You're alive. You were baptized, right? So that means you're alive in Christ. And what do a, what a living people do? They walk, they, they, they live, they, they come forth. Lazarus, come forth, get up, he gets up and walks. You now, you have new life. Well, you should just naturally, very naturally walk 
in newness in life? Should you continue in sin? You know the question from verse 1 from, from the last chapter. Just keep sinning? Well, no. You've died to sin. Don't you get it? Like you've died to sin. It's not your master anymore. Why would you keep living in sin? Why, why would you even want to if you've been raised to new life? So like, where are we learning here? I'll try and bring it back. It's, it's a big point. So stick with me. We're learning that baptism saves us. Not talking about water baptism. Baptism in Christ is our salvation, right? We'll, we'll talk about that later. That's a, that's a people cross wires in the wrong way, and, and that's where they get water baptism wrong. You're not saved by water baptism. It's merely the symbol. But baptism in Christ, that's salvation. These are salvation terms we're talking about. We're talking conversion. Union with Christ is a, an a essential core New Testament teaching of you know, what happens at salvation. And really, it lifts the hood on how we're actually saved. What happens? Well, you're, you're knit to Christ. You're identified to Christ, with Christ. He becomes your head, your Savior, your Lord. And now all the, all the blessings flow. Like the head is united to the body and just the blood flows and the body comes to life and we're alive because we're united to him. He's the source of it all. Our forgiveness, our new life, our eternal life flows from the head. You don't get it if you're cut off. You've got to be attached to the head. And baptism in Christ, that's just the, the metaphor Paul uses now. Immersion in Christ. Union with Christ, that's how you get it. It's by faith, right? We've covered that. It's by faith, by grace. But this is what's happening. I'd say another thing that kind of messes with you, like, you know, I say we're saved by baptism, meaning baptism in Christ. We're also saved by works. We are saved by works. Not your works, Christ's work. We're saved by his work. It's the only work that can save. Only Christ's finished work on the cross can save us. Our works, our works, righteousness, all of them put together count for nothing. Right? So, again, you get I'm kind of being cheeky, but our works contribute nothing. His work saves us. That's why he came. He, he was crucified. He rose. And how do we receive the benefits of his saving work? By faith. And that faith, what does it do? It brings us into this vital union with Christ. We identify with him. And through that flows all of the, the salvific benefits of the cross and the, the empty tomb. AKA baptism to Christ. That this is what we're talking about here. In Christ, in this baptism, we've put off sin. We've died to sin's power and penalty. Your every sin has been forgiven. Sin is no longer your master. And you've risen to new life. He gives you resurrection life. You have it in Christ. And because this is true, you should live like it. You see how Paul is making these spiritual realities, these realities of our baptism in Christ. You see how he's making these the foundation for Christian living. Why should you live the Christian life? Why should you put off sin, put on righteousness? Well, you've been baptized, right? Well, you should be new. You should live a new life. Christian life is not about just, I got to try really hard to, to be better, do good, overcome sin by my own effort. No, it's about living out the victory and the newness that we already possess in Christ. And you see how that truth just weaves right into baptism in the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit. That's Romans 8. We can't get ahead of ourselves, though. 
but it all kind of works together. You should live like it because you should live a new life. Well, because you're new. If you're really in Christ by faith, if that's true, you're supposed to be alive from the dead. You should live like it. And that should be all the motivation you need. You should draw from that your motive for right living. Now, I want to connect this teaching actually a little bit here before we finish to water baptism and give a little snapshot, a little preview of its practical importance. But first, we need to bring in one more passage. This will be quicker. A second major passage where Paul expounds on our baptism in Christ. It's found in Colossians 2. So let's do one more. Colossians chapter 2. We'll do 9 through 12, at least to start. Colossians 2. And there Paul makes essentially the same point as in Romans 6. In a complementary way, adds a few nuances there that are helpful, but you'll see a lot of the imagery. It should, this should make a lot, a lot of sense after laboring through Romans 6. This should fall into place, but let's, let's read. We'll start at verse 9 for a little bit of context of Colossians 2. He says, For in him, he's speaking of Christ, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you've been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of flesh, of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now already, can you see how this passage Again, it's picking up on this theme of our union with Christ. Verse 10, you've been made complete. How? In him. You see that? In him you've been made complete. Also, you've received this circumcision made without hands. How? Well, he says, in him. Verse 11. It comes by virtue of being in Christ. And as a quick side note, it wasn't until later that Christians were called Christians you look at the New Testament early on, the number one a way of identifying the Christian were those simply like in Christ. And you read with new eyes the New Testament, pay attention to all the places it says, identifies a Christian as those in Christ. Not merely of Christ, those in Christ. It's actually a grand theme of the New Testament, our union with Christ. It's, it's huge. Now, anyway, speaking of the circumcision, is it literal or figurative? Here it's figurative. He's not here talking about the physical rite of circumcision. He's actually referencing here the greater reality of heart circumcision. It's one made without hands, which is required for salvation. We will talk a lot more about that later, but we're, we're being a little brief here. But in part, physical circumcision was an outward symbol of the need for inner cleansing. You don't merely need to be circumcised to be saved. Just like Taking a bath doesn't save you. Baptism, like the, the physical rite is not salvific. But rather what both heart circumcision and baptism point to is the need for, well, rebirth, a new heart, a new life, regeneration. And that's precisely what happens to us and what we get when we're united to Christ, uh, i.e. when we're baptized in Christ. And so verse 12 again. 
It says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. Just like Romans 6, very similar, where we were buried with Christ in baptism. And we were raised up with him too. His death is our death. His new life is our new life. And so you see how baptism again represents our death to our old life and our birth to our new life. There are some conversion and and even regeneration realities attached to this baptism in Christ. That'll become even clearer next week when we talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit. But you'll save that for then. Water baptism itself, though, if I can say a few words, becomes a kind of living parable of this transformation, this passing from old life to new life, all by the work of Christ, which we access through faith. And let's just read verses 13 and 14 while we're here, as he goes on right after. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I hope it's starting to come together in your mind. Most people think of water baptism as our real baptism. Because it's something where we can see, we can experience. But water baptism is not our real baptism. At least not salvifically speaking. That's not the most real baptism there is. Water baptism matters. It does. But it's likewise true. It does not contribute to our salvation. Rather, it pictures our salvation. What matters most, at least the the first side of this coin, is baptism in Christ. That's what's truly real. That's what's saving us. The spiritual realities attached to baptism in Christ is our new life, our forgiveness, our our salvation. Through baptism in Christ, we identify with Christ. Christ is Lord and Savior, right? He's head. He's, He's substitute. But when you come to faith and you're baptized in Christ, he becomes your Lord. He becomes your Savior. He becomes your personal substitute sacrifice. And, and all of this now, all of the benefits of that are true now of you. In him, we die to sin. We rise to new life. In fact, you can now think of all of the saving benefits in the New Testament that are attached to this concept of union with Christ. And essentially, these are all true of baptism in Christ. They mean the same thing. We're talking union with Christ. Really, it's through this union, this baptism, that all the benefits of salvation flow. Quickly, don't turn. I'll just read Ephesians 1.3. It says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1.7. In him... We have redemption through his blood. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 5.11. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. 
And behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 really sums it up. Are you in Christ? Well, have you been baptized? Which is to say, have you placed your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if so, you need to remember now that you are new. You're a new creature. The old things have passed away. You've triumphed over all the old sin and death in Christ. Not because you're good or righteous or did things or nothing. It's just because of what he did. And that's yours now in him. And so now you should live like it. Live in the power of resurrection life that was given to you at your baptism. Your baptism in Christ. We'll talk more about water baptism in future lessons, but just to finish, let me, let me finish by making a quick little connection here to encourage you that your water baptism should remind you of, of other things, but, or rather of many things. It should remind you of your conversion and your baptism in Christ, right? And you need to remember your conversion and your baptism in Christ often. Why? Well, when you sin, do you ever get discouraged? Maybe when you keep struggling and even losing with the same sin, do you get depressed? Or maybe you just kind of blow it one time, big time though, and you commit egregious sin. Do you become downtrodden like King David? Do you feel the loss of the joy of salvation? You don't lose salvation, but he experienced the loss of the joy of salvation. Do you ever get like this? Imagine you do. Sometimes you should. Sin robs you of your joy. If you're tolerating sin, well, it's, it's, it's going to, by definition, steal joy. It should. But now, you know, look, God wants you to repent, to return, like we learned this morning, James 4, 8 through 10, right? Repent and return to him. And as you do so, God wants the joy of salvation to be restored to you, right? You're to live in that joy always. How is that joy restored? Is it by your works? By your efforts, maybe you sin, you blow it, you repent. Lord, forgive me in Christ. Maybe you say, Lord, I'm going to make it up to you. I'm going to read my Bible like an hour today. And I'm going to listen to like two sermons and I'm going to pray. That's just penance. That's not, that's not repentance. That's just penance to make yourself feel better. That's not right. How, how is the joy? How is that? You're feeling the guilt. How are you free from the guilt? You got to do something. You got to go on a pilgrimage now. Or like, how, how, are we, how do we get the joy back? It's nothing you can do. It's what Christ has already done. Isn't that what we're doing in repentance, daily repentance? We're merely just going back and remembering the cross, remembering conversion, remembering, wait, I was baptized. Even the symbol of water baptism can take you back to these realities. Recall your conversion. What did he do for you? He died for you. He conquered sin for you. You know that that sin you committed he triumphed over it and all the others. And by this, you need to remind yourself, you, you don't have to pay for your sins. In fact, you can't. If you had to, well, that's why hell is eternal. That's how long it would take you. But he already did that for you. You don't have to be enslaved to your sin. It, it's not your master anymore. You can overcome this sin. Christ is your master. He's already won the victory over all sin. And he can give you victory practically speaking, over whatever sin you're struggling with as you go to him. New life, it's already yours. 
You should experience some of this newness. I hope you do. But think back to your conversion and remember in a new and eternal life, it comes in Christ. That your encouragement, your, your spiritual vitality, you know, so to speak, the energy you need to, to overcome, to press on in the faith, walking by the Spirit, it all comes in Christ. And yeah, I was baptized. I'm in Christ. That, that happened to me. It's pictured by my water baptism. I remember. And, and just let these truths remind you to, to go back to Christ for, for our daily life, for our daily encouragement, even when we sin, to overcome and to be restored. Go to Christ for your life. Make Christ your life. You should say to live as Christ, like Paul did. These truths are meant to, to give you the encouragement you need to press on and to daily overcome as you wage war against the flesh. You're not old anymore. You're the new creature. And this oldness, you, you, should, you should put off. But you're going to do that in Christ, by his power, by his work, by going back to him and, and driving that the power through his work, which we'll see a little bit next week. That being said, there is more to come. We're, we're starting off here by just laying a foundation for baptism in the New Testament. And I think it rightly starts with baptism in Christ. But it's really one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is baptism in the Holy Spirit. They, they go together. You can't talk about one really without the other. So we'll come back next week and do just that. Do this complementary truth of baptism in the Holy Spirit. And see how important that is as well. So let me pray for us in our time together. Lord God, we, we magnify your name for what you have done for us in Christ. Where you did for us we could not do for ourselves. Namely, pay for our sins, triumph over death itself, make us new, give us a new heart, and then even grant us eternal life. We couldn't do any of those things. Even if we tried, impossible. We are, we are of first Adam. But we thank you for sending the second Adam to come and do this on our behalf as the great substitute sacrifice. And he victoriously lived a life without sin, died on the cross, was buried, rose on the third day, descended a seat at the right hand, and he gives his work and, and all the benefits to his people who come to faith. And, and that's us now, Lord, as we believe in him. We receive all of this, all that which we could not do for ourselves. This is, this is meant to encourage us. Even as we go on in this walk and in fighting sin, we need to just go back and draw all of our, our power for daily living from Christ, from the cross, from his work. We are new. We are to walk in newness in life because we've been baptized in Christ. And so I pray these truths come to greater clarity in our minds this evening, that we, we've learned something, and it really impacts how we live as we just bring it to mind and walk by the Spirit. Bless our evening and, and our gathering together, and may we, just, may we walk by the Spirit as we depart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.